This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Majority Report, Citizen Radio, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, and The Bugle. And a note that the profanity and complicated emotional issues around today's topic may make some uncomfortable, but it's the quotes from Thatcher that will really make you sick. This past Monday, both Margaret Thatcher and Annette Funicello died. I don't know that much about Thatcher, but I know she pissed off Morrissey. (laughs) Ronald Reagan is said to have been good friends with her. Must have been her warmth and sense of humor. It certainly says something that 23 years after she left office, Thatcher is still widely hated in England. On the announcement of her death, people took to the streets to celebrate. We didn't even do that when Richard Nixon died, much less Reagan. But as Americans, we probably forgive more than we should. I mean, we still give George W. Bush credit that 9-11 only happened once. (laughs) (laughs) Thatcher is even considered a gay icon, though she certainly didn't seem to think much of them. Maybe it's because she projected the image of a strong, determined woman who could have easily been played by Benny Hill. (laughs) She famously once said, there's no such thing as society which caused a lot of debate over what she meant. But I believe Thatcher was really saying she was as worried about poor people as Romney. (laughs) Still, Thatcher was ahead of her time. She hated single-payer health care, labor unions, and people on welfare 30 years ago, and now it's all the rage. The worst thing you could say about Annette Funicello is she was not a great singer. But at least she never threw a coal miner out of work. I was a miner. I was a docker. I was a Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, has passed away. And she was apparently very uh, polarizing because we have just a number of people going crazy about how amazing she is and what an inspiration she has been throughout the world. And then we have a few people who have vilified her for her um, anti-progressive policies. So let's start with uh, the people who loved her. Reagan had been a big Hollywood star for a long time. He met a lot of famous people, but with Thatcher, she was in a special category. Well, she was a towering figure, a woman of tremendous strength of conviction, uh, great courage. Yes, sometimes the things that she said were tough, but I think when you look back, she was overwhelmingly right in her judgment. Oh, she's incredibly brilliant and witty and fast on her feet. Uh, the force of her personality was really something to behold. And, and her sense of candor, she could be so disarming with those one-liners. And then she said something a little bit untoward about our French allies. <laughs> and she, she looked at me and waved her finger at me. Don't write that down, young man. I think uh, this country has just lost its greatest prime minister since Winston Churchill. The British people have lost a great inspiration. Uh, they have lost somebody who should be an example to anybody in political life today. And I think it's not a stretch to say that she not only changed the arc of history in the U.K., she changed the arc of 
of history in the world. Margaret Thatcher was a revolutionary and she was a liberator. We're debating whether or not to go to the United Nations to get a UN Security Council resolution authorizing the use of force. But I never will forget her sitting there in the wing chair in the Oval after this debate went on for about an hour and a half or maybe an hour or so. And finally she just looked at the President Bush. She said, hey, George, she said, let's just go do it. <laughs> a rejection of anything that smacked of what she considered a socialism or, or what we call liberalism in America. Well, if you deal with women that uh, define themselves as part of a women's movement, uh, they don't like Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I think she was one of the remarkable prime ministers in British history. But if you're looking at women that succeed by simply the quality of their work, their leadership, she's uh, one of the great uh, women leaders of the 20th century. Two distinct groups there. The women who identify with other women and the women who succeed. Two separate <laughs> groups. There's no overlap there, according to him. Anyway. That's hilarious. Nice. Some people call her the greatest prime minister since Winston Churchill. Some people call her an uncaring warmonger. <laughs> I will go with the latter. I will go with the latter. And I think her legacy is one of shit. People talk about... It's because... Right? Don't you think it's, it's the same thing they do with Reagan, right? They build him up to be this thing that he wasn't. Ronald Reagan raised taxes, the biggest tax increase in the history of our country. He did all that stuff, and people just pretend that he didn't do that stuff. Well, Ra Margaret Thatcher did the same thing. When she got out of office, taxes were higher than when she came into office. Mm. Plus, she added, she raised the value-added tax, which they have over there. So I think she is, this is all like, the thing she did was bad. She crushed unions. Um, she hurt the poor people's women, and she was a warmonger. Those, they're giggling on that tape. Let's just go and crush these people in the Falkland Islands. Let's go kill 900 people is what they did for nothing. Yeah, I, I think I someday, someday I think we'll have those same little jokes about like, oh, George W. Bush, he wasn't going to wait for like the UN and allies. Just go in there, bomb them. <laughs> let's just go, let's go yeah. kill some people. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Look, but I, I think that what we're seeing in the media and what you saw in those video clips is a combination of people who simply shared her ideology and so they're going to speak favorably about her because she was you know very strong and like they people on the right conservatives tend to they tend to idolize people more so than than liberals i think i think it's just a psychological characteristic and then you also have the people who might not agree with her and might if you were actually find, like ask about her particular policies they might disagree with her but they simply feel like well you know we're on mainstream media we can't say anything negative about her it's one of the differences between them and us of course so i think we're going to be a little bit more critical and you right. started off that off well i hope so yeah. i hope we're going to be critical of her because she was not a good leader uh -huh. i mean as far as the, her legacy the results results of her policies and the things she did were bad mm -hmm. they're the you know um she privatized London, you know what I mean? She uh, crushed the unions, mm -hmm. and uh, she had a legacy of uh, boom and bust yeah. uh, with the housing market in England. So uh, what, what, tell me some more bad stuff about her, Steve. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, she did a lot of things that I suppose conservatives today would be happy with, which is basically union busting. Um, and when she was education secretary uh, in, in England, she was the one who made a decision to stop giving away free milk to 7- and 11-year-old mm -hmm. kids. Uh, in school. Screw so them. after that, her nickname became Margaret Thatcher Milk Snatcher. Watch your mouth. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a family yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, okay, so so let's talk about her legacy a little bit. Uh, so what did she do? Um, one of the things that she did was uh, she uh, under under her leadership they shut down a whole bunch of steel mills in uh, in in England, and they effectively destroyed the steel industry. Now one can argue that it was good, or one can argue that it was bad. The, one of the ways that the steel industry was being propped up was through 
um, public dollars. So the government supported these uh, companies, and through the through that support, they were able to maintain their ability to pay their workers. Mm -hmm. So I guess on the one hand, it was a way to give people jobs. On the other hand, it was a waste of taxpayer dollars. So she yeah. she cut them and she destroyed it. And um, you know, with the combination of high high unemployment, uh, these. Uh, Cuts to uh, cuts in subsidies to various industries that weren't performing well. She effectively destroyed the unions. I mean, her real legacy is not good. Mm -hmm. You know, do you, she um, the, all the utilities privatized in London. She deregulated uh, the city. Basically, she cut welfare. She didn't. She hurt the working class. I mean, yeah, she, she did. Didn't. So here's some of the things that she was for when she was prime minister, and said so afterwards. Socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. In the book she wrote after she was prime minister, she uh, the quote was, um, I believe that the NHS, that's their national health care service, was a service which we could all be proud of. Mm -hmm. So she is for socialized medicine. She, was, uh, uh, she recognized climate change. Here's another quote. She said, the dangers of global warming is as yet unseen, but real enough to make changes and sacrifices so that we do not live at the expense of future generations. She would be a heretic in today's yeah. Republican Party. Conservatives would think she's You're for socialized. I mean, those are the two things they're pushing back against the hardest is uh, Obamacare, universal mm -hmm. health care, and climate change. She also passed some gun control regulations. And she passed. Well. There you go. So. Yeah. So again, they're not the, the modern-day conservative. Conservative is so far to the right that they make Mar Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan look liberal. Mm -hmm. But so what they have to do is rewrite history to make them not be liberal. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. I'm not shedding a tear for Margaret Thatcher. With Ronald Reagan, she ushered in our current era of austerity. She was vehemently anti-union, thoroughly pro-capitalist. She sold off public properties and hacked at Britain's social safety net. And she let the rich get a whole lot richer while she spread pain throughout the lower and middle classes. She was a hawk on foreign and military policies, not just with her assertion of imperial power over the Falkland Islands, but also with her eagerness to embrace nuclear weapons. The best thing she did, though, was to recognize that Mikhail Gorbachev was an unusual leader of the Soviet Union. I like Mr. Gorbachev. We can do business together, she famously said. Her warmth toward Gorbachev melted the ice between Washington and Moscow and led Reagan and Gorbachev to come close to a historic agreement on nuclear disarmament. But on economic and social issues, Thatcher's legacy remains a disaster. She paved the way for even liberal politicians like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton to shove it to the poor, as in Clinton's ending of welfare as we know it. And she made it acceptable, as we're seeing throughout most of Europe today, for policymakers to forsake social democracy and make their working classes and middle classes bear the brunt whenever the free market system fails. She was the mother of austerity and this generation is suffering as a result. 
I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Margaret Thatcher died, right? She died, and it was tough. It was hurt me. It was tough for everybody to take, right, Margaret that Thatcher? Was tough, yeah. That she's, was, um... she has a champ. She's a champion for equal rights, feminists. Uh, she's a working man. She's the voice of the voiceless. Oh, wait a minute. She's the opposite of all that. And uh, <laughs> so I thought it would be interesting, and I know people uh, who listen to the show regularly are going to think that I'm picking on Chris Matthews because I am. And uh, I just well, what happens is like when I'm putting together the show or I'm writing, I'll have on a news show in the background, and nine times, eight times out of ten, it's MSNBC, uh, but sometimes it's CNN, and very rarely it's Fox. But normally I'll have something on in the background, and that's why I hear. And Chris Matthews says the craziest stuff in the world. So here he is, by the way. So we're going to compare and contrast Chris Matthews and Chris Hayes, how they both handled Margaret Thatcher's passing. And here's what Chris, first they both did a preamble before they gave their like review of her life. And here's Chris Matthews preamble. Let me finish tonight with Margaret Thatcher. Let me repeat what I said on Morning Joe today when I first got word. Okay, hang on. Let me. So here's Chris, Chris Math, Chris too tough on government Matthews, as he (laughs) likes to call himself. Remember, I'm too tough on these guys. This is Chris too tough on government Matthews taking the passing of Margaret Thatcher as an opportunity opportunity to punch a hippie and this time the hippie is hollywood let me finish tonight with margaret thatcher let me repeat what i said on morning joe today when i first got word of the former british prime minister's death i don't like the way hollywood makes movies about people they don't agree with politically ronald reagan comes off as an amiable dunce margaret thatcher gets a movie about her life that focuses on the dementia which she suffered late in life Let's do this right. If you disagree with someone politically, take on their strengths. Do what they did in that little British film, Brassed Off. Take your shots. Hit them where they're strongest. And you disagree with them the most. Don't come off trying to be so, so compassionate, so balanced, when what you're really doing is finding a velvet glove to punch them one more time when they're dead and can't <laughs> sue you. One of the best examples I've discovered in politics and in covering it is the best of people, the ones I admire, always there to say something good about the best of those on the other side. Reagan would always salute. Yeah, yeah You know what? Yeah, Matthews, is, he's right about that. He knows how to salute people on the other side since he was ready to put George Bush on Mount Rushmore <laughs> for invading Iraq. Okay, he's he got a little close Franklin to Roosevelt. Clinton would always salute Reagan. It comes with the territory. Yeah, Clinton would always salute Reagan, even while the Republicans were impeaching him. <laughs> what a yeah. good sport. What a Clinton good was. sport. <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny that Matthew. By the way, uh, uh, no one um, was bigger, was more in favor of that impeachment than Chris Matthews. Than Chris Matthews. That's right. Okay, here we go. No one, no one was some. more vile towards Bill and Hillary Clinton, both. Reagan would always salute Franklin Roosevelt. Clinton would always salute Reagan. It comes with the territory. You admit great leadership because that's what you yourself hope to achieve. So here goes. Wow, wow. So Matthews is right. Praising your adversaries does go with the territory if you're a career-hugging kiss-ass. 
Yeah, and was uh, was um, Reagan saluting FDR as he was uh, flushing his policies down the toilet? <laughs> yes, and and and, and, sh- and shitting on his legacy. Was he saluting him then? Yeah, while he was undermining the New Deal and demonizing yeah. poor's. He hated Medicare, you know. Yes, and demonizing blacks as welfare queens. So here's the same. Here's the same news network. A journalist named Chris, different last name, and it's the same subject. But listen, listen how different this sounds. Here's Chris Hayes. Former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher died today at 87, and there is an understandable instinct to be charitable upon someone's death. The death of public figures is an incredibly important occasion to wrestle with their legacy, and the wrong message can be massively destructive. The perception of someone's legacy has consequences because it tends to establish what the consensus position is, what we've all collectively learned from the person's life. President Obama's statement read in part, the world has lost one of the great champions of freedom and liberty. America has lost a true friend. As a grocer's daughter who rose to become Britain's first female prime minister, she stands as an example to our daughters that there is no glass ceiling that can't be shattered. Yet according to a former advisor, Thatcher herself said, the feminists hate me, don't they? And I don't blame them, for I hate feminism. It is poison. Now, if Thatcher was known for anything in her amazing career on the world stage, it was pulling no punches, and out of deference to that legacy, we should pull none ourselves. Wow, so there's Chris Hayes, a little different preamble to his Margaret Thatcher review, a little bit different. He uses this as an opportunity to set the public record straight and to hold her feet to the same standards that she held others, right, Uh, even in her death. This is what Chris Hardball calls a silk perch to... This is what Chris Hardball calls a silk purse to punch her with. That's which is that's what he calls journalism. He calls journalism a silk purse to punch someone with. So let's so the preambles are over. Now let's actually get to the summation. First, let's go to Mister Suck Up to Power himself, Chris Matthews. Here goes. I think Margaret Thatcher, the first woman to lead a great Western country in our times, is enormously worthy of respect and admiration. I think her great premiership, second only to Churchill's in modern times, stands as a great precursor of what a woman leader can bring to office. If and when Hillary Clinton seeks the presidency, the legacy of Thatcher will be a strong standard on which any woman, especially the recent Secretary of State, can run and win. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so there you go. Yes, she was the second only to Churchill, according to Chris Matthews, except Churchill fought against fascism, but Thatcher, not so much. <laughs> yeah. She kind of dug by it. Way, Chris, Chris Matthews has compared, he compared George W. Bush to Churchill so many times during the uh, Iraq War. Every time he made a State of the Union speech, Chris Matthews would say it was Churchillian in its eloquence. Yes. Uh, of this great wartime president. Well, that's, that's our friend, Chris Cop on the Beat Matthews. <laughs> can, uh, once again, making sure that we don't mistake him for somebody with integrity. <laughs> can I once again point out that Chris Matthews just doesn't understand his own metaphors? Yes. There is no such thing as a silk purse with which to punch somebody. Okay. That's, that makes no sense. Yeah, I think he's thinking velvet unless glove, it's a, perhaps. Unless it's, a, uh, mm-hmm. unless it's a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. <laughs> it, you make silk purses out of sow's ears it's a whole different thing it's nice to see that matthew's praise for for the powerful cannot be bought because he gives it away for free it's weird he's a slut he's not even a whore that margaret thatcher's dead (laughs) margaret thatcher is dead yet chris matthew's still worried what she thinks about him (laughs) he likes powerful dead people too so now let's go to Chris Math, uh, Chris Hayes. Now here's somebody with dignity and integrity who feels like it's his job to actually provide a service to his viewers. And uh, here's how he handled the passing. Ready? Here we go. 
Britain's. Here are just some of the hallmarks of Margaret Thatcher's 11-year tenure as Britain's Prime Minister. Thatcher initially opposed economic sanctions against South Africa's apartheid government. She referred to Nelson Mandela's African National Congress as a, quote, typical terrorist organization. When Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet was arrested for war crimes, including the widespread capture, torture, torture and murder of political dissidents, she called for his release, and he eventually served house arrest in London. On the domestic front, Thatcher's victory ushered in policies that lowered inflation but sent the unemployment rate past 10% for a grinding, miserable five and a half years. As former London Mayor Kane Livingston put it, she decided when she wrote off our manufacturing industry that she could live with two or three million unemployed. Even as the economy improved, it came with immediate and long-term costs. Child poverty rose, with nearly one-third of children living in poverty by the time she left office. Thatcher's tax policy shifted the burden from the wealthy to those at the bottom, reaching its most audacious peak with a 1990 poll tax, which was so severe on the poor to, to the benefit of the wealthy, there were widespread riots. It was replaced within a year after Thatcher's resignation. Recent documents show Thatcher was scheming to privatize the National Health Service, which is a beloved and popular institution that has provided universal health care for Brits, regardless of means or class since the end of World War II, and may well be one of the great hallmarks of Western social democracy. But in the face of popular opposition, she retreated from plans to privatize the water industry and the National Health Service, replace college grants with a student loan program, cut back pensions, and revamp the social security system. Thatcher supported Section 28, which said local authorities shall not promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Thatcher is often talked about in conjunction with President Ronald Reagan, as the conservative failure tale goes, because they both came into office during periods of malaise caused by leftist overreach. And they both absolutely eviscerated their left opposition and permanently altered the trajectory of politics in their countries. Thatcher once said, there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, there are families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people must look to themselves first. Wow. David Hopper, General Secretary of the Durham Miners Association, who were resolutely crushed by Thatcher in a series of dramatic and at times violent strikes, said she destroyed our community, our villages, and our people. She absolutely, absolutely hated working people, and I've got very bitter memories of what she did. We live now, still today, on the Reagan-Thatcher axis, their legacies reaching forward through the years in their shared contempt for egalitarianism, they both bequeathed massive inequality. Today, decades after they left office, if you compare inequality across industrialized nations, England and the U.S. are at the top, also sharing the least amount of social mobility. This is the society that Thatcher and Reagan gave us. Societies of shrinking middle classes and tremendously high levels of inequality. And if you do not like that vision, then you have little occasion to celebrate Margaret Thatcher today. Okay, well, that's all good and well, Chris. But try to say that when Chris Matthews is in the studio, <laughs> you're going to get a fat lip, you big shot. <laughs> you whining little carping liberal in your mom's basement. <laughs> oh, except he's not in his you know mom's basement. Go ahead. Well, no, I'm, I was going to say, you know, um, I think she truly, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher truly embodied traditional values because uh, by, by increasing childhood poverty, she returned England to the time of Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> We're all wondering how we ended up so scared. We spent ten long years teaching our kids not to care. There's no such thing as society anyway And all the rich folks act surprised When all sense of community dies And you just close your eyes to the other side Of all the things that she did 
the kids And it seems a little bit rich to me The way the rich only ever talk of charity In times like the 70s A broken down economy meant even the upper tier Was needing some help I want to talk about two different aspects, though, of the, of the Thatcher legacy. And I, I think, though, I think one, um, which is just kind of the most glaring, uh, because uh, there's, there's kind of two ways of thinking about the, the Thatcher legacy. One, um, there's a kind of unacknowledged consensus in some ways that she's about things that she was actually completely wrong about. Uh, to the point where David Cameron, who's the conservative UK prime minister, has actually apologized on, her, apologized on her behalf. And then other areas in terms of economics and social policy where she, uh, Thatcherism still kind of reigns supreme, frankly. But first, let's look at what Margaret Thatcher's attitude was towards apartheid South Africa when she was prime minister of the UK, and specifically towards Nelson Mandela. So this is what she said and be and and you know bear in mind Nelson Mandela was still in prison by the apartheid regime when uh, when uh, Margaret Thatcher came to power in several uh, years through her premiership. She said about Nelson Mandela, she called Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, which was the you know Liberation Party of South Africa, that Nelson Mandela was a, uh, and the ANC was a typical terrorist organization. <laughs> And she and, and even as the international community came together across party lines to apply sanctions to uh, the white apartheid Africana government in South Africa, Thatcher opposed sanctions, calling for a policy of what she called constructive engagement. Now, I don't know what that means. But what it seemed to mean in practice was opposing sanctions and calling uh, Nelson Mandela a terrorist. Um, so in South Africa, speaking of the opposite end of the spectrum uh, of reaction to Thatcher, look at this tweet. Someone tweeted out, Mandela outlived Thatcher, 1-0 freedom, history is the ultimate judge. That's one uh, Twitter uh, twit tweet that went out in South Africa in reaction to Thatcher's death. Uh, and you know, and look, it's and and actually, and what again, was it, what was it again? You missed that. One more time. I just want to make sure I got it. Mandela outlived Thatcher. One o freedom. History is the ultimate judge. Okay, that last line. I picture George Bush say something like that. That'll be a, a tweet about me when uh, I go. A tweet when. When everybody recognizes sometime out in the distance that I just was sort of like Charlie Sheen said, winning. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to quote the, uh, the great Charlie Sheen. Quote the great Charlie Sheen. Now, uh, now of course, Margaret Thatcher wasn't just uh, atrocious in South Africa. She was atrocious in Chile. She said, uh, and, and actually, and I think Pinochet, this is another uh, thing that we could kind of get to because this, is, this serves dual purposes because on one hand, this is another example of Thatcher. Look, the reality of being in government, I think, is that sometimes you're going to have relationships and engagement with unsavory players, okay? So that I think, and, and governments of all kinds, 
Uh, you know, in fact, the ANC government, which currently runs South Africa, which came out of the apartheid struggle, has, uh, you know, uh, disinvited the Dalai Lama from a Nobel uh, Prize laureate event a couple years ago because they didn't want to offend China and jeopardize arms deals with China. So this is a cross-political thing. But when you talk about Chile, uh, this is, so, so just think about this. Margaret Thatcher called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. Now, Augusto Pinochet, who came to, to, to power in Chile in 1973 in a military coup, organized opposition people and opposition politicians in soccer stadiums, had them killed en masse, uh, and pioneered a way of killing people which was used in Argentina uh, and by a number of right-wing uh, junta governments in Latin America where you would take people in helicopters, drug them so they passed out, cut their stomachs open, throw them out of the plane so they could sink into the ocean. And their uh, families would have no way of kind of uh, tracing or recovering the body. So this is Pinochet's human rights record. And he did this all with the support of, of course, not only Thatcher, but also, uh, you know, the United States. The coup happened under the Nixon administration. Kissinger was very close with uh, Pinochet. Now, in the late 80s, Pinochet, uh, under an agreement where he had lifetime immunity for all of his uh, serial human rights abuses, did agree to have a referendum to transition Chile back to democracy. So Thatcher said that Augusto Pinochet was the man responsible for bringing democracy to Chile. After he overthrew a democratically elected government, killed tens of thousands of people, jailed opposition leaders, had people tortured, then he agreed to a, a referendum where he would have lifelong immunity, and Margaret Thatcher came away with, he brought democracy to Chile. But of course, from Margaret Thatcher's perspective, another, uh, and other people, you know, another big fan of, of, of Pinochet libertarian listeners was Milton Friedman. Because Pinochet, while he was committing these horrific human rights abuses, was privatizing government industries and slashing social spending. So he was held up as this great model for free markets. So I guess markets and freedom don't always come together. Uh, but you got to, but, but again, so, but, but I, think, <laughs> I know. Huh? Huh? What? Totally shocking. <laughs> again, I just. Wow. Exactly. So basically, uh, those are, and then of course, uh, also uh, she was she was very friendly with the Saddam Hussein regime uh, in the 80s when you know he was still on the right side of things. Uh, General Suharto in Indonesia, who also had a horrific human rights record. So that's part of the Thatcher legacy, which we should all be talking about. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. 
I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. Hey, Jimmy. Fucking, uh, your Margaret Thatcher's dead. Uh, good. Yeah. There we go. That was also my immediate reaction. <laughs> that was my, that was my immediate reaction was good. And then I thought about it and I was like, still good. And then I read the responses on Twitter of people being like, let's be better than that. And I was like, mm, still good. No, I'm good. You know, when I'm people good. are like, you might want to take the high road. Nope. I'm like, I'm fine on the low road. You know, you know why I like I'm take, cruising along. You know why I like taking the low road instead of the high road? Where's that? Because when you take the low road, you can smell Margaret Thatcher's corpse from mm, hell. I enjoy that as well. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, she's burning. Uh, so you with, guys with Ronald Reagan. Obviously, yes. Obviously. So if uh, anything, it's a happy reunion. Why is everyone so mad when we point this out? Why are you so mad? Why are you mad? I didn't fucking... I didn't call Nelson Mandela a fucking terrorist. Margaret Thatcher did. Yeah. We didn't fucking destroy poor people and coal miners' lives. Let's list all the things she did. Margaret Thatcher did. Maybe not all the things she did, but... So there were these ridiculous... um, you know, glowing obituaries circulating the internet about how she saved Britain. And uh, the funniest one I saw was uh, she ended the class system because apparently there's not a class system in Britain anymore. I believe that obituary was written by one Adolf Hitler. So, who's still alive for this joke? Just uh, go with it, you idiots. So, Greenwald. Uh, over at The Guardian wrote a really nice takedown of why that's ridiculous to write these glowing eulogies. Um, and this is just a paragraph I wanted to read for you guys. Whatever else may be true of her, Thatcher engaged in incredibly consequential acts that affected millions of people around the world. She played a key role not only in bringing about the first Gulf War, but also used her influence to publicly advocate for the 2003 attack on Iraq. She denounced Nelson Mandela and his ANC as terrorists. Oh, what'd she say about feminists? Uh, well, let me just finish reading this. Something even David Cameron ultimately admitted was wrong. She was a steadfast friend to brutal tyrants such as Augusto Pinochet, Saddam Hussein, and Indonesian dictator General Suarto. One of our very best and most valuable friends, she said. I will remember you. You can keep it. And as my Guardian colleague, Samas Milne, detailed late last year, across Britain, Thatcher is still hated for the damage she inflicted and for her political legacy of rampant inequality and greed, privatization, and social breakdown. Weep not for... The memory. Or, oh God. as the New York Times put it, the strong economic <laughs> medicine she administered to a country sickened by inflation, budget deficits, and industrial unrest brought her wide swings in popularity, culminating with a revolt among her own cabinet ministers in her final year. So, up until then, everybody really supported her. So that- and then those. Fucking that would be like traitors. Medic- yeah, that would be like medicine. Like if you were like sick and you needed like the flu, like flu medicine or something, and it, it was like an anti-vaxer trying to give you medicine, and you're like, I just, I just need regular medicine, and they're just like, drink this chia honey, and you're like, oh, just give me medicine. Chia honey. Chia honey. That's I'd like to said. purchase your chia. Well, honey. the thing is, I like chia, and it's legitimately nutritious. You already sold me. So I didn't want to say that, but honey's not vegan. Whoa, so I don't have that. salesman! You oh. already sold me. 
kind people have a wonderful dream. Margaret Gillettee. Cause people like you make me feel so tired. When will you die? Was Maggie Thatcher? Uh, you know, my sense of her always was that she was one of those people who comforted the comfortable and afflicted the afflicted, um, much like Ronald Reagan. Uh, Morrissey, the singer of the 1980s band The Smiths, published an interesting piece uh, today. He said Thatcher is remembered as the Iron Lady only because she can possess completely negative traits such as persistent stubbornness and a deter ter determined refusal to listen to others. Every move she made was charged by negativity. She destroyed the British manufacturing industry. Well, Reagan began that process to the American manufacturing industry. She hated the miners. Uh, Reagan busted up the unions. She hated the arts. Reagan defunded the arts. She hated the Irish freedom fighters and allowed them to die. Well, you could argue that they were throwing bombs at her. They almost killed her, in fact. There's a little more nuance to that story. She hated protection. She hated the English poor and did nothing to help them at all. She hated Greenpeace and environmental protectionists, Morrissey says. She was the only European political leader who opposed a ban on the ivory trade. Let us remember, she called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. She hated feminists. I, I, I just find it interesting. The, I, you know, I've, I've, I've read a whole series of articles here this morning about Thatcher and Reagan and and I did not know until just, just a few minutes ago that Margaret Thatcher's husband was a director of the largest oil company in England. It's a little bit like uh, discovering that Ronald Reagan's wife was running Enron. It's really quite incredible, you know, when you think about it. Yes, Thatcher rides by night, lend an ear, lend an ear. Yes, Thatcher rides by night, lend an ear. Yes, Thatcher rides by night, your faults I will proclaim. Yet doctrines I must blame, you will hear, you will hear. Yet doctrines I must blame, you will hear. You privatize away, what is ours, what is ours. You privatize away, what is ours. You privatize away, and then you make us pay. I will take it back someday, mark my words, mark my words, we'll take it back someday, mark my words. U.S. media had plenty to say about former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, much of it glowing. Fox's Bill O'Reilly, along with his conservative guests Britt Hume and Bernard Goldberg, lavished praise on the conservative icon. Among her accomplishments, according to the host, was bringing unemployment down from 13% in 1982 to 5.8% when she left office in 1990. 
Nice trick on O'Reilly's part, but counting Thatcher's entire tenure from 1979 to 1990, unemployment actually rose from 5.6% to 7.9%. It's natural that Fox should remember Thatcher fondly and that Bill O'Reilly is caught torturing statistics, but the spectrum of opinion on PBS's NewsHour was hardly better. PBS featured Republican Secretaries of State George Shultz and James Baker, both big fans of Thatcher's foreign policy. More than that, as Baker proclaimed, she, quote, emphasized the private sector and got rid of the oppressive influence of the trade unions, close quote. Shultz added, thoughtfully, that Thatcher was, quote, a very attractive woman, so you were certainly aware of that. Close quote. Another conservative NewsHour guest, former Canadian Prime Minister Kim Campbell, also cheered Thatcher's defeat of unions and praised her humanity. It's kind of touching to be reminded of what a lovely woman she was. Thatcher critics and labor representatives with a different view of her controversial career or her humanity were apparently unreachable by Fox and PBS bookers. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Top story this week. You die if you want to. The lady is not for dying. Oh, hold on. Scratch that. I think I'll give it a go. It's Maggie Thatcher, death catcher. <laughs> well, what an emotional week. It has been for Britain, Andy. The 87-year-old former Prime Minister and political juggernaut Margaret Thatcher has died. And it may be very hard for people around the world to understand the kind of strange emotional roller coaster that Britain has been on over the last seven days, as many people are forced to navigate some complicated feelings regarding how to justify feeling slightly less than sorrowful over the death of a frail, vulnerable old lady. It's been halfway between a celebration and a memorial this week. It's essentially been a celebrorial. <laughs> and if you saw some of the scenes on TV of impromptu street parties over the death of Margaret Thatcher, you might understandably think people in Britain are a bunch of heartless <laughs> And to some extent, you'd be right. Seeing 18-year-olds dancing around after the death of a woman whose time in power they never directly experienced, albeit the aftershocks of which they undoubtedly felt, is not an entirely heartwarming experience, and it's only going to get more complicated from here. The official full ceremonial funeral is going to take place on Wednesday in London at, ironically high cost to the taxpayer, <laughs> a final hypocrisy haiku in a controversial career. Now, apparently, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not officially a state funeral, although... It's going to be f***ing difficult to tell the difference, because there's apparently not going to be a military flyover, but there's going to be pretty much everything else. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically it. It is a state funeral in all apart from name, including, specifically, as you say, 
uh, in price tag. And um, it's been, uh, I think it's fair to say, more than a little bit controversial because uh, she was a woman who uh, didn't just split opinion but uh, slathered it with ice cream and popped a glass of cherry on top. And also, interestingly, within minutes, John, uh, of her death being announced, um, there was a, a great debate on how it should be commemorated, not just in society in Britain as a whole, but also amongst buglers, uh, particularly through the Bugle Twitter feed, with a lot of people asking uh, whether or not she would get, or demanding that she should get, a f eulogy. And, you know, it's uh, that's a tough philosophical question to address, John, right. because, uh, as you know, you set the bar pretty high for f eulogies, uh, yeah. and we, we try to maintain that in this franchise. We don't just hand them out to anyone. You've got to really earn them. And uh, you might say set alongside Bin Laden, Gaddafi and Kim Jong-il. There's no way a woman even as divisive as Thatcher deserves a f eulogy. But you would also say set alongside Churchill, the Duke of Wellington and Isaac Newton. She sure as f doesn't deserve a state funeral, which is, as you say, essentially what she's got. Um, funded by the taxpayers, a large percentage of whom would only be happy to contribute if their money was being used to pay for a giant 50 metre high middle finger made of coal to be paraded 10 yards behind her coffin. Also, Parliament was recalled to pay tribute to her a few days earlier than it would otherwise have done, will that have made m many difference? Was she going to get any more or less dead in those intervening days? Perhaps she was, apparently Tory central office was reportedly disappointed and surprised that as of three days after her death there had still been no resurrection. They issued a statement saying we assume it's just been some kind of administrative hold-up. According to precedent, it should have happened by now. It's probably to do with paperwork. Thank you, Brussels. There is, there is going to be blowout media coverage on Wednesday, regardless of this uh, not-quite-state with a uppercase S funeral. And maybe this has actually come at a good time for Britain, Andy. Last year we had the royal wedding, we had the Olympics. We've been looking for another reason to put on a show for the world, and I guess this will have to do for now. The problem is going to be how to produce the spectacle necessary when everyone's feelings regarding the person in question are so complicated. British people are notoriously not particularly well in touch with their emotions, so how are we going to fake our way through a funeral, Andy? Maybe we need to get in some of those professional mourners or some of those terrified-looking crying people who were lying the streets at Kim Jong-il's funeral. That, that's when you will know officially, as a member of the world, if the British people have decided we're not up to publicly grieving, Andy, because <laughs> we won't have enough tears in the tank. If, if all the shots, you will know if all the shots of the procession in London on Wednesday feature hordes of frightened North Koreans. That's how you'll know that we've basically given up and gone to plan B. <laughs> Uh, the scale of the funeral will reportedly be along the same lines as those for Princess Diana and the Queen Mother, and the public cost, as we're mentioning, has raised some eyebrows, as it doesn't seem to sit well for someone who in her lifetime was so against public spending of any kind that she said about privatising the living shit out of everything. Surely it would be far more appropriate, Andy, to find a way to have the private sector take care of this, have sponsorship up the side of her coffin like a race car, and have product placement join the eulogy. Yes, it will be slightly inhuman, but what, appropriate, what more appropriate way could there possibly be to bid farewell to one of the most calculating politicians in recent memory? And also, Andy, that would open up the potential for us to pay for a much more spectacular ceremony than the one we're currently able to, which might satisfy both sides. It would mean we could have a giant inflatable Belgrano, the <laughs> Argentine ship that was shot in the back during the Falklands. We could then have her coffin in the shape of a pointy torpedo and carry it into the back of the inflatable ship, puncturing it and deflating it as a hologram Ronald Reagan cheers and then bursts into tears and attempts to throw himself into Thatcher's grave before her. <laughs> Again,
again, yes, it would be tasteless, but isn't that what she would have wanted? <laughs> she was, as you say, an incredibly, uh, incredibly divisive figure in this country. She polarised this nation like a celebrity chef smearing a grizzly bear in cream cheese and buying it a one-way ticket to the North Pole. <laughs> and, uh, she's, uh, she was a sort of a political medusa. But if you looked into her policies, it would simply turn you to stone. She was a dominatrix in a parliament of submissives. And if you want to know the relationship between Thatcher and her party, any time you see footage of her talking in parliament, imagine all the grey men sitting behind her wearing gimp masks. And I think that'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll show you exactly, exactly what Britain was like in the <laughs> 1980s. Andy... I guess this bugle's going to probably be about half an hour, but really you only need to listen to that sentence to perfectly evoke <laughs> what Britain <laughs> is going through this week. To, uh, to indicate some of the complications that are ahead of us, the Premier League did not ask clubs to observe a minute silence at uh, any football games this weekend, which upset a number of people, especially Thatcher's former sports minister, Richard Tracy, who said, frankly, I think it's rather cheap that they decided not to show any sort of respect for her, because, to be honest, she really did deliver what football is today. And, exactly, Andy, <laughs> he's not wrong about that. She really did deliver what football is today, an unregulated commercial nightmare. <laughs> Plus... Let's not forget her and her government's response to the Hillsborough disaster, which guaranteed that if you ask football fans to observe the life of Margaret Thatcher, you might get a minute of something, but it sure as shit wouldn't be silence. <laughs> in fact, there might actually be something in that, Andy. Maybe they should have suggested a minute's noise across the country, just so you could make any primal sound that you wanted in relation to Margaret Thatcher. It might have been cathartic for the whole of Britain. Some could cry, others could cheer, many could cry at the others cheering, some could moo, but all could find a way to process their feelings. Well, I think uh, it could be even simpler than that. It could just have a compulsory pantomime booing, I think. Minute's silence and then a minute's pantomime booing, punctuated by shouts of... He's behind you, referring perhaps to the way she was ousted from power by being stabbed in the back <laughs> by her own party. The same party that has effectively politically canonised her this week. I don't know if you saw any of the uh, parliamentary debate in which Parliament was recalled no. just to uh, pay tribute to uh, Lathatch. Uh, I don't know, if, were you in Australia for that or were you uh, glued think, to your television? I think I was probably on my way back. I didn't, I didn't right. see it. You probably could feel the reverberations in the aeroplane as you flew around the other side of the world. But I don't know, probably some buglers might have seen it, some probably didn't. But if uh, any buglers out there who've ever been wondering what it would look like to see 300 Tory MPs simultaneously masturbating, I think that is probably <laughs> as close as we will ever get in this world. There, is, there have been some... Pretty objectively distasteful responses to her death this week. There were uh, impromptu street parties and an internet campaign to try to get the song Ding Dong The Witch Is Dead to number one on the British singles charts. The problem is that the time for celebration at Thatcher being gone was probably November 1990 when she left office and was no longer relevant. The problem with that problem is that she hasn't really stopped being relevant at any point since. Ex-Prime Minister... Tony Blair, perhaps a little nervous about the future response to his passing, <laughs> criticised those people who'd held street parties to celebrate Thatcher's death, saying that they were in pretty poor taste. And I don't think there's any denying that that is true. The only argument is whether that lack of taste is appropriate or not. He then urged the critics to show some respect. And I think there has to be a balancing 
feeling to people's responses here, Andy, because I think there's just bound to be an inclination to push back against some of the eulogising of her time in office that you just mentioned. I've felt that way, Andy, and I haven't been in Britain this week, where I'm sure you've been taking a saccharine shower in Iron Lady lionising, <laughs> and that can't have been easy to take. Uh, yeah, John, it has been, uh... It's been difficult to take, and some extraordinary things have been uh, been said. There's just been a, you know, the kind of extremes that she has uh, provoked throughout her career, and now after death, have been extraordinary. David Cameron uh, said on the day she saved our country, by which he meant she saved David Cameron's bit of the country. And <laughs> as he said those words, more television sets were smashed in Britain than at any point <laughs> in British history since Chris Waddle blazed a penalty over the bar in the World Cup <laughs> semi-final against Germany in 1990. And it was interesting for me, John, I grew up in, uh, in the southeast in Tunbridge Wells, which is about as Tory as a town can possibly get, without just flying off into orbit and looking down at the world saying, well, we are far better than you lot. And at my school, John, there were 600 teenage boys. That was, uh, was the contents of my school. We had a school general election in 1992 to coincide with the uh, real general election and uh, 550 of those boys voted for the conservative candidate which shows <laughs> the independence of spirit that was fostered in the oh, right. in places like that and it was uh guess only really was sort of when i sort of saw a bit more of the world than that small bit of kent and thatcher land that uh, maybe i began to realize what you know that she wasn't quite the goddess that she'd been presented if you left a pile of 600 copies of Playboy magazine and 600 copies of a glossy magazine tribute to Margaret Thatcher at my school and said to the boys, you could take one magazine each. Then 600 of those boys would take the Thatcher magazine and the same 600 boys would then also take Playboy. <laughs> but it just kind of shows the, the way she was viewed at that school. And, and then they would just rifle through Playboy looking to see if there are any, any bunnies of the month with bouffant hair and an aggressive looking handbag. Yeah, I mean, you... The problem with this week is there's a, a natural emotional process to go through balancing what she did with who she was. And that, yes, she was the first female prime minister in the UK, which is unquestionably a landmark achievement. But she also blocked sanctions to South Africa during apartheid and famously took milk out of schools, which led to her nickname Maggie Thatcher, Milk Snatcher, or as some people rhymed it, Maggie Thatcher, Total <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, though, she's best remembered through some of her own words, too. One of her most famous quotes came from 1987 when she said, There is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families. Now, she didn't just talk the talk, Andy. She walked the walk. She didn't just believe that there was no such thing as society. She set about dismantling it in front of everyone's eyes to make sure that she was right. And that tonal whine of hers pairs perfectly with a slightly earlier quote where she argued that nobody would remember the good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had money as well. <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, that's right. That's the message to take away from the parable of the Good Samaritan, Andy, that the Samaritan was a successful small businessman. It wasn't a par It was a parable in private enterprise. Say what you like about Thatcher, Andy, and this week, you can't. But <laughs> she was nothing if she wasn't a free market theologian who listens, who listens to the story, Andy, of the Good Samaritan and thinks, wow, thank goodness he'd walked past so many needy people while building his business that he was able to 
help this poor wretch. I just hope that he leaves his welfare instincts at that, because at the end of the day, his first responsibility is to his shareholders. <laughs> I want to go uh, into another part of the Thatcher legacy that I think we, we definitely still live with. And before I do that, I want to play a clip of Billy Bragg, who's the great um, uh, British uh, uh, protest uh, songwriter, activist, and musician. Give you me have a second. The, you have the, okay, I don't. we need a second. So basically, look, Margaret Thatcher is known for... Uh, there's no question that when she came to power in Britain, uh, the country was stagnating. Uh, the economy was sluggish. Uh, there was a lot of uh, kind of cozy relationships between certain aspects of the business community, labor, uh, government. Uh, Britain wasn't sort of uh, moving, and the economy was, was deeply stagnant. Now, her answer to this was the answer that we've seen was Reagan's answer in America, and the answer we're still living the consequences of. Oh, do we have that sound? Go we ahead. do. Here we go. go. Of uh, uh, um, collective responsibility, collective provision, and as a singer-songwriter who'd grown up listening to Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie and the, and the Clash, it, it seemed to me that my place was to be, you know, there on the picket line playing songs. And it was interesting because it was a bit of an education for me because I didn't, like I said, I didn't go to college, so I didn't know a huge amount about socialism. So it was a very steep learning curve. They wanted to know why this pop singer from London had come up to, to the coalfields, sitting up late at night on sofas with people, drinking cups of tea, smoking cigarettes, talking about politics. And uh, so, yeah, I can tell you that my the great inspiration in my politics was Margaret Thatcher. Were it not for her, I probably wouldn't be a socialist. <laughs> so I, th I, I play that clip because I think he actually is giving a great historical overview because Thatcher came in at a time when you had a consensus in the UK and really arguably a consensus across a lot of industrialized countries, which was fraying. It was running into some trouble, but nonetheless, there was a consensus that you're going to have universal services. You're going to have anti-poverty programs. You're going to have a role for labor. Uh, you're going to have, in some respects, a collaborative decision-making process between the government, the private sector, and the public sector. Uh, now, she came in to ruthlessly break all that up. And the narrative that we hear mostly in America and that has kind of reigned through the 80s and 90s, and I think particularly um, when credit was easily available and we were living through the tech bubble and the financial bubble, that this has sort of been the narrative, I think, arguably, really up and through the mod, you know, the, the two thousand seven, the two thousand eight financial crash, which was that what Thatcher and Reagan did was destroy these uh, monopolies in the public sector, unleash the power of the market, and raise living standards for everybody. Now that's the kind of comfortable part of the narrative. Now. There's two really big problems with that, obviously. And one is what I love is about that clip that Billy Bragg is talking about, is that it wasn't like this was anywhere remotely a consensus process while it was happening. 
And in order for her to unleash the power of the market, this organic, freedom-loving thing, she needed to unleash police power on protesters. She needed to unleash the state to literally destroy the domestic coal industry in Wales just so she could destroy that union. That was the purpose uh, of, of unleashing that. And this is actually really where... Um, you know, I know a lot of people write in and reference uh, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. And I think that in, arguably in some ways, even more radically in the United States, Margaret Thatcher really implemented a shock doctrine on the UK. It was a very violent and controversial process, which led up to her actually proposing a poll tax, which is what eventually kind of led to even her own party dumping her at the end because she had proven so controversial, caused so much violence and so much agitation. So that's the first part of that narrative was that, you know, this easy narrative is that all the unions were corrupt and the whole process was corroded. And, and look, that's not entirely untrue. But the way she did it uh, and what she grew out of it was incredibly brutal and incredibly one-sided and, and showed a complete disregard for people's livelihoods. Now, the second thing, and I think the other legacy that we still play out with too, is that the premise, though, of that first of what she came up against being like outdated and outmoded and corroded rests on the assumption that what she put in its place is sustainable and robust and resilient. And we all know that that is complete nonsense. Because what does she put in its place? She hollowed out the industrial sector of Britain. Okay? So just like in the United States, you go through large swaths of America uh, and other, uh, and you see places that essentially are bombed out. They're totally deindustrialized. Um, you know, people don't have work. There is an opportunity for people to live middle class lives without, um, you know, higher levels of education. And even obviously, that's getting called into question in today's world. And she replaced it with deregulated financial sector. Um, and an explosion of consumption, uh, genuinely on the top end because they were making way more money, and uh, in, the, in, the, in the middle class because credit was more readily available. So that's the world we live in. And I think the most uh, disturbing thing uh, is that, you know, if ever where there was a time for... And then, and then I think the other kind of historical step is that guys like Clinton and Blair came in and their whole policy was, this is basically the framework we'll govern under, but we're going to soften the edges. We'll provide more training for people. We'll protect uh, so some social programs. Um, and that was kind of the, the arrangement. And arguably, even though there was a lot of horrible things that came with that, there wasn't that much of an appetite for a different politics. Now, President Obama, with doing things that he has genuinely accomplished, like health care reform and things like that, he is kind of a great third-way leader, which is the name of that brand of politics. The only problem is that totally doesn't work in today's age, if it ever worked to begin with. Because if ever there time for a serious counter-reformation, it was when all of this stuff blew up in our faces in 2008. The cheap credit and everything else, too, that they set into motion, which was the never-ending reliance and the notion that we can have continuing cheap oil supplies, cheap energy supplies, uh, and all the rest. So this rests on really faulty assumptions. I think what Billy Bragg shows, though, and what's inspiring about that is that this has never been taken passively. There's always been activism. There's always been a fight back. 
And as these policies work for less and less people, and as um, we become more thoughtful, in some respects hopefully, I think that there is opening to start to lay the groundwork in the long term for what we really need. And that goes way beyond, again, and I, I think this is one of the reasons that I, I don't, you know, go strongly in either way with President Obama because I never thought President Obama was going to save us from this uh, to begin with. And I don't think he's to blame for a lot of these structures that are in place uh, that, that he inherited. Now, I wish he was responding to them differently, and I find things like the budget proposal atrocious, but I think that he's operating in a context that was set long before him and that needs to be fundamentally changed. And a big part of that fundamental change is going to come through activism. It's going to come through different types of business. It's going to come through different types of organizing. It's going to come through reclaiming the commons. Uh, and a lot of other things that are maybe kind of left for a, a different day. But I, I think the best part of Margaret Thatcher's legacy is if we can actually sit down and really talk about, talk about what she actually did unleash and all the ways in which it's proven unsustainable and a mistake. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. Although I don't have time to play the messages today, they'll be back in the next episode, so leave your comments at 202-999-3991. So if, if anything came across in today's episode, I hope that it was it was I was somehow how able to impart a bit of the feeling that I got from making the show. Uh, not not even so much from the clips that were chosen, but from the music actually. Uh, you know, as as a pretty far left progressive in America in 2013, I, I felt a you know sort of kinship going back in time and across the ocean to these you know pretty radical progressive uh, people in Britain at the time, you know, raging against Thatcherism. And I mean, I was born in 1983, so you know, not only did I not have any idea what was going on in the world until probably five years after Thatcher had left office, um, you know, I, I am separated by distance as well. And so, to feel sort of a connection and the similarities between the struggles they were going through and you know, modern day struggles, it was just. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I recommend if you have found any of the music in today's episode interesting that you go find the, the full songs and listen to them in their entirety because uh, it, it gives at least a bit of a sense of the emotional impact the Thatcher administration had on her political opponents at, at the time and or the people, at least in the lower class, who maybe didn't even know that they were her political opponents but were being adversely affected by her policies. So, I don't know, I just, I, I felt an interesting connection there that I didn't expect and wanted to share that. But primarily today, I wanted to talk about uh, Germany, obviously. Today's topic about uh, Thatcher and Britain gives me the perfect opportunity to talk about Germany, uh, just as you would expect. I, I've been reading this book called uh, Were You Born on the Wrong Continent? And it's written by an American labor lawyer who, uh, he obviously labors his specialty, he focuses on the economics, and he's just, he, he does a lot of comparisons between the U.S. and Germany, but the U.K. and the U.S. are very similar, and so he compares with the, the, the U.K. as well. So today's episode, I, I promise this, this fits in perfectly with today's episode. 
So he's basically arguing in this chapter that I'm going to read some excerpts from that uh, socialism is actually baked right into the DNA of corporations in Germany. And this stems from the post-war era after World War II. And the idea was they didn't want to give a lot of power to the central government to impose socialism on the corporations there. They wanted to give sort of bottom-up power so that the workers could sort of fight back in, uh, against uh, management and strong government and, and so on. So Germany doesn't really have a, a strong central government running their their variety of socialism, but uh, it, it's baked right in. And so he, he talks about works councils, co-determined boards, and unions. I'm going to read excerpts on, on all of those. And so uh, works councils are basically unions for a single large company. And uh, the workers actually vote on you know people to be their representatives to the union, just, just like you would imagine. So these are called works councils. This is what he has to say. Now think about this. They hold elected office. They legislate. All over Germany, ordinary citizens have this totally un-American chance to govern. And this is real self-government, literally laying down the law for where they go to work. And then he asks the guy he's talking to how many people work on these works councils. And he gets the answer, half a million. Half a million? With turnover, it could be millions of people who could end up with the experience of being on a works council. I mean, there are only 83 million people in the entire country. Think of how this changes the ratio of activist to passive or couch potato citizen. That's why Germany is like another planet. And then he goes on to talk about uh, co-determined boards. Now, this is where, amazingly, 50% of the representatives on boards of directors for large companies in Germany are actually made up of representatives of the employees and the workers themselves. And so this is what he has to say about co-determined boards. In the U.S., people often don't even know there is a plant closing until all the employees are ushered out under armed guard. But in Germany, the workers are Cato-like guardians who are reading files, looking over the management's shoulder. If they don't go along, they can make things harder. Maybe they can't stop a sale, but they can push for a different owner with a deeper pocket to run the plant. They can raise questions, they can squawk, and they're everywhere, the guardians. Wouldn't your own behavior change if you thought every moment Cato was watching you? So think about that. The, the actual the management of the company is being overseen by the workers themselves. So the, the interests of the workers can be put in the forefront in cooperation with the interests of the business itself, very much unlike the U.S., so then he goes on to talk about the unions. He says, okay, now we've covered works councils and co-determined boards, then what are the unions supposed to do? They do the bargaining over wages and pensions, but at a macro level with an employer federation. Let's say in our example, it's made up of big bookstores like Barnes & Noble and Borders and of course Walmart. So they set the wage for everyone over a whole square mile area. Though we used to bargain this way in the US in the 1940s and 1950s, we do nothing like this anymore. I doubt if even one out of a thousand Americans even knows or has heard the term multi-employer bargaining. And he's right. I had not even heard of that, uh, had no awareness whatsoever that there was such a thing as being able to bargain across uh, different employers. I mean, we general strikes are now outlawed in America. So um, there's definitely very, very few ways to show solidarity across different uh, companies in this country. 
So he's making the argument about these systems in place in Germany. They're not only helping their industry and their economy, which they are. They, you know, Germany has one of, if not the strongest economy in Europe, uh, but is doing amazingly well compared to the rest of the world, including China. Uh, you know, and they have socialism built in, workers' rights strongly in place, and high wages all, all at the same time. But they can compete globally, anyways. Uh, but not only that, he's arguing that it helps their society as well. This is what he has to say about uh, their industrial base in general. He says, Without an industrial base, a democracy dies. An industrial base makes it easier to organize a labor movement, and a labor movement makes it easier to keep a social democracy in which people have a stake. Look at the voting rate in both the UK and the US, which wrecked their middle-class industrial bases, then compare it with that of France and Germany, which did not. And just, so just think about that in stark uh, you know, contrast to the words of Thatcher about how society doesn't really exist and the sort of policies that sort of made she, – she said that society didn't exist and then implemented policies to try to make that a reality, whereas Germany did the exact opposite and they have much better engagement in their, uh, in their society, as you might imagine. And so having gone over these points, then we get to the question, how did Germany get to be the way it is and why is the U.S. and the U.K. the way they are? And so he gives a couple of answers. Number one, the U.S. Army did it. Yes, America put this German model in place. After World War II, as the occupying power, we had a problem. Who would keep watch over all the German business types who had supported Hitler? One way to do it was to set up co-determined boards. Works councils came later. Back home, the New Dealers, who ran the U.S. war effort, were used to pushing unions on businessmen. They did the same thing during the occupation. In a way, Germany of today is where the New Deal went on to live. And then the second answer is, the British Labor Party did it. The occupying authorities were not only New Dealers, but British Labor Party socialists. Wary of class war, the young leftists wanted a way for workers and managers to cooperate and have less class war. Yes, they said to the German workers, don't make our mistakes. Of course, the British went on making them. And so to wrap things up and wildly oversimplify the situation, the booming economy and high voting rates and social engagement in Germany is the legacy of the socialists and new dealers from the post-war era and the floundering economies and disintegrating societies in the US and the UK are the legacies, as we just learned in today's episode, of the hard rightward turn we all took economically under Thatcher and Reagan. Now, as always, I'd love to hear what you have to say. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show, there are lots of ways to do it. Everything from iTunes or the standard RSS feed to a variety of great apps on smartphones, including Stitcher, which people love, and even a best of the left app made specifically for the show for Android or iPhone. Thanks also, and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bought a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you wanna need A dying man in a
Jesus before. 